Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're asking the question, do Americans eat enough protein? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 129 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are going to talk all about protein, and we're going to make a case for whether or not Americans are eating protein, and this is going to be based on the current body of research. This is a controversial topic amongst nutrition experts. Some people think that the RDA, with the recommended dietary allowance, is adequate protein to meet Americans' needs or to meet the average, the human's needs, right? And other people will argue, like myself and Nicole, you as well, that that's just not enough protein. And this stemmed from a conversation that Nicole and I had based on an article in the New York Times. And this article was titled, Are Protein Bars Actually Good For You? And so the article goes to discuss uh, various different protein bars, and, and we're going to get into this. We, we are going to talk about protein bars and supplementation uh, within this conversation because I think it's important to uh, talk about where you're getting your protein from and if you're supplementing with protein or if you're eating your protein. So we're going to touch up on that. But essentially, the article has a bunch of nutrition experts that claim that we are hyper-focused on protein and there are protein bars and shakes everywhere. We all know this today. We go to 7-Eleven, we see a whole huge protein section. We go to the grocery store, we see protein bars everywhere. We see protein shakes everywhere. And the question I guess that this article is asking is, do we really need to focus on this? So the you think, so let me ask you this. You think the real question around this article is whether or not we are eating enough protein versus the type of protein because it was all about protein bars and not protein in general. So I think there protein. are two I think there are two things that are highlighted in this article. Number one is are protein bars good for you, which is the title of the article. But okay. Within that there's kind of a subcategory of are people already eating enough protein? And the answer in the article is yes. So for example, I'm going to read kind of some of these excerpts here from this article and uh so Protein is an important part of our diet, it, it says here. There's no question that our bodies need protein for building, maintaining, and repairing muscles, said Anthony DiMarino, a registered dietitian with the Cleveland Clinic's Center for Human Nutrition. Protein also makes up our hair, skin, nails, and organs, and the amino acids in proteins help our brains function. Because what, what are neurotransmitters? They're peptides, mm -hmm. right? They're proteins. They're made out of amino acids. Perhaps because of that, protein stands alone in the world of wellness. Over the last 40 years, fad diets that vilify sugars, fats, and carbs have come in and out of fashion, but many of the most popular diets, past and current, prioritize protein, associating it with weight loss. Dr. Sh and excuse me if I'm butchering this, Dr. Shrizan, I feel like it's missing a, uh, I don't know if that's a typo or if that's a language thing. It's like missing a vowel there. Mm -hmm. We value protein in quotes, we value protein so much that it's the central thing on our plate, which I would agree that it should be. Now, the 
article goes on to say, you'd be hard pressed to find an American who actually needs more protein, Nicole. And this is the point that we're going to get into in today's podcast. Mm-hmm. You'd be you'd be hard pressed to find an American who actually needs more protein, says Eric Rim, a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. That is Harvard's nutrition program. Most meat eaters get far more than the recommended daily dose of protein, which is about 0.4 grams per pound of body weight. It's a, not exact because it's based off of pounds to kilograms, which is 2.2, not two, uh, but it's 0.8 grams per kilogram is the recommended amount. And those who don't eat meat can get enough protein from plant sources like tofu, nuts, and legumes. And in addition to that, there is also a statement here from Dr. Cutting Jones, who is a food historian from the University of Oregon in the Department of History that says people just need to relax about protein intake. Now, I want to just highlight the reason why I highlighted that she's a food historian from the University of Oregon in the Department of History is because her specialty is history. So she's looking at food history. She's not really looking at food science. And if you look at food and nutritional science and all of the science that we have on things like weight loss, health, um, protein needs for the elderly, this is where we find a discrepancy between the recommended dietary allowance and how much protein we should consume. And Nicole, I'm going to take it a step further. And you can talk about this from an experience standpoint. And I know so can I. For those of you listening to this podcast, Nicole and I combined have over 35 years of experience working with clients. So at this point, we're talking thousands of clients. And what the data shows in terms of do Americans eat adequate protein? First and foremost, I'm going to put again the disclaimer that adequate protein is defined as 0.8 grams, a minimum of 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that is based on the RDA. And if I look at the RDA, essentially the RDA is defined as the average daily dietary intake level that is sufficient to meet the nutrient requirements of nearly all, or it's based on 97 to 90% of healthy individuals in a particular life stage and gender group. So what that proposes is that that is the, that's basically what it means is it's the minimum threshold to prevent deficiency. Like if you eat less protein than that, then you are going to have deficiency symptoms. You're going to have deficiency disease. We know that people in other countries, uh, third world countries, or uh, I don't know what the proper term for that is these days, developing nations, that's what we call them now. Mm -hmm. We know that individuals in other various different countries around the world, they have deficiency symptoms, right? If you ever see the, um, I believe it's Corsair disease where they have the big stomachs, Oh yeah, because they have an enlarged liver, and and, yeah. and that has to do with uh, d- protein deficiency because they're not mm-hmm. eating adequate protein. So we do know that there is, um, there there are symptoms of protein deficiency, and it's important to get adequate protein. Otherwise, you will have that deficiency. Now, what they're saying is, we don't see those inherent diseases, the protein deficiency if you're consuming at least the RDA, but that's the deficiency level. That is not the optimal level. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into where we make the case for, well, what exactly would the optimal amount of protein look like if the RDA of 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight uh, is not enough? And so what I want to talk about first is where the data comes from. 
So I have data here from current protein intake in America analysis of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey 2003 and 2004. That seems to be the most up-to-date information that I can find on it. And, and that's that's NHANES. Now, if you understand what, how NHANES works, NHANES is survey data. So I'm going to get to why that's important to highlight in a moment. This study determined current usual intake of protein in America using the most recent data from NHANES. Usual protein intake for Americans age two and up was estimated. Usual protein intake was calculated on a grams per day, grams per kilogram ideal body weight and a percentage of calories basis. Protein intake averaged 56 grams plus or minus 14 grams in young children, increased to a high of about 91 grams plus or minus 22 grams per day in adults age 19 to 30, and decreased to about 66 grams plus or minus 17 grams in the elderly, right? So we've got 56 grams for kids. We've got 91 for kind of middle-aged adults. I don't even know. That's not even middle-aged yet. That's 19 to 30. And then we've got a decrease in protein intake, which is going to be an important thing that we're going to highlight later on in this episode. We see a decrease to 66 grams per day. Now, the reason why I want to bring up the fact that this is survey data is because the way NHANES surveys work is they just pick up the phone, they call a bunch of people, and they ask them questions about their dietary intake. And Nicole, you and I have worked with lots and lots of clients. How many clients would you say can accurately estimate the amount of protein that they're getting in? None. None? Like zero? Like literally zero? Seriously. Um, until we start working together and they start getting educated on what that looks like for the individual that's in front of me, none of them come in, one, even knowing how much protein they're eating. None. Even And this is even people that have wor are working out and exercising. Maybe they've even tracked their food and they have maybe a general idea, but none of them really know how much, it, like they're not weighing and measuring. Like we get into all that. And then even when they weigh and measure, we have to play around and we have to build on that. Like, so I would say baseline, none or not very many. Right. And if we look at, let's say we look at other data, right? Like, so for example, we look at USDA data, USDA mm -hmm. data will go based off of, for example, how much food a household would purchase and how much protein does a household purchase, right? But we don't know how much is going to waste, right? So the point is this, Nicole, is that we don't have an accurate depiction of how much protein America is actually eating. And I guess what I'll ask you is, what does it take for people to even realize and understand how much protein that they're taking in? Education. They have to learn about it. Have you yeah. ever, have you ever done this? Okay. So quick, just side note, I was in the grocery store in line, putting all my food on the thing to check out. And the woman behind me asked me, or she said something about, wow, you eat so healthy. And I looked in her cart and I said, oh, well, thank you. I said, so do you. And she said, well, yeah, I have tons of protein. I do the best I can with protein. And then I looked in her cart and she had like. Like four grams of protein. Barely like one thing of chicken. And I said, oh, so how, what, what do you, what's in your cart that is protein? And she listed off things that did not have protein in it, like peanut butter. I mean, it has some protein in it. But from an education standpoint of how much, what type of amino acids and the types of proteins, she did not know. She just was generally going off what she thought the protein foods in her cart was. So if you want a survey, I would love to see them go into a grocery store. This may be a good thing for you to do um, 
for a, a Instagram post and ask people to show you the protein in their cart when they're grocery shopping or checking out, because I can guarantee you many will, but maybe a lot will not know the difference and why that's a protein versus the peanut butter versus right. chicken. What's the difference? Yes. Yeah. So first and foremost, what you're saying is they need education Yeah. because they're not educated around what is actually a protein? I mean, I've had situations where people are like, yeah, I had avocado. I thought that was a source of protein. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. it's predominantly a source of fat. It maybe has one or two grams of protein in it. And it's also a source of carbs, right? You might, what is it like 10 grams of carbs in an avocado and you know, yeah, whatever what are you is. eating it with and how are you coupling right. it together? And so, so they need education around that. But the other thing is they also need to be conscious and aware. They need to be made aware. So one thing that I oftentimes find is that if I have them, I say, okay, you're eating 100 grams of protein, at least you swear you're doing that, log in a food journal every day for a week, and let's see how much protein you're actually eating. And then it ends up being like 30 or 40 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this is where the education comes in. You have one, you have to, you do have to know what protein sources, where, the, where they come from, what they are. Then two, you log it in to see if the protein sources that you choose are adding up to an adequate amount for your body. And then the third piece, which we've talked about many podcasts, is the consistency of that number over time. Are you eating 150 grams of protein every day for six months, a year, versus once a week? You, you know where I'm going with this. Just so those are my three pieces to how do they know better, do better, and become better. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nicole, we're going to uh, take a walk here into some of the research around protein requirements. And there is a um, there's a position paper here from Stuart Phillips, uh, who does a lot of protein research. And uh, the position paper is called Protein Requirements, quote unquote, beyond the RDA, uh, that, that recommended uh, dietary allowance and implications for optimizing health. So uh, this paper pretty much covers everything that I would talk about, all the meta-analyses, all of the studies, and all of the different topics that we're going to talk about today in regards to protein. So higher intakes of protein may help prevent age-related sarcopenia, the loss of muscle and strength that predisposes older individuals to frailty, disability, and loss of autonomy. So if you if you know anything about like the, the health of individuals as they get older and you start to kind of dive into the research and you look at implications for disease or you look at implications for um, all-cause mortality, you'll notice that there is a trend that when individuals, as they age, they start to lose a significant amount of muscle. And this is for various reasons, which I will discuss. Um, but essentially the RDA, the 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight is actually there, so there are certain nutrients where there's like there's vitamins, for example, where the RDA changes as you age, um, for example, and, and also change by gender, right? So, for example, men and women need a different amount of calcium. Uh, men and women might need a different amount of zinc. I, I don't know that. I'm just saying like throwing out random examples, right? And then as you age, calcium recommendations also change. Now, for protein, that's pretty much stagnant, right? Protein is an essential nutrient that it's proposed that 0.8 grams per kilogram per day or 0.4 grams per pound per day is going to be sufficient basically from ages like two and up. And I'm going to argue that that's not necessarily true. And these are some of the reasons why. So 
We know that mTOR, which is the gene that is triggered when you eat protein or when you work out, uh, you're stimulating mTOR, which is an anabolic gene that stimulates for increased muscle protein synthesis. That stimulates, that basically uh, build, helps you to build muscle, right? So if you are stimulating mTOR with, and this, this is where protein distribution comes in, right? And how much protein you're eating per sitting matters too, because what we find in older individuals is that if it takes 20 grams of protein or 25 grams of protein to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis in an individual in their 20s or 30s or even 40s, if you have an individual that's 60 and above, they can eat the same amount of protein and they're not going to be able to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis or gene expression mTOR. So what that suggests is that they need a higher protein load per individual meal, meal that they're eating in order to be able to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, maintain their lean mass, maintain their strength, and maintain their health for a longer period of time. Now, I brought up strength just now. Strength is one of the number one indicators. When we look at grip strength, it's mm -hmm. one of the number one indicators for mortality in older individuals. So if you start to lose your strength, you're basically more likely to die. So the goal in an older individual, and now there are a couple of caveats here because it's, it's difficult, but part of the reason why I think older individuals eat less protein is because they just eat less in general. You lose your appetite as you get older. And I'm gonna make the case that, well, maybe in the case of this article on protein bars, maybe it would be more beneficial for an older individual to eat a protein bar because they're not eating sufficient calories. And if you can supplement more protein within their diet, then they may live longer. And they may have like autonomy is a big one here, right? Loss of autonomy. Like when you age and you get older, you don't want to lose your autonomy. That's miserable. Those are your last days or your last years that you're living. And you, you don't have any autonomy. You're in a nursing home and everybody's wheeling you around. You can't function on your own. That's what that's saying. So that's the case for older individuals to eat even more protein than younger individuals. And I think that we need to increase protein uh, or increase the RDA at the very least for that older population. I would add to that as I'm sitting here thinking for the perimenopausal menopausal woman is the exact same thing because we're losing muscle. Our hormones are slowing down and changing and we're a lot of women are concerned about gaining fat or, you know, body uh, changes in terms of fat distribution. And that protein requirement does need to be higher. And I'm experiencing that myself right now at my age. And I've been increasing my protein, increasing my protein. So then I'm holding on for dear life to the muscle that I have worked so hard for in this life. But I also think, too, I think people get really confused when we talk about higher protein diets, because the word higher, I think they think that means higher in a way that would be unhealthy versus higher than what you're currently eating now to maximize your current state, age, development, muscle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so the word uh, higher, I think is confusing. I have a question for you then. How do we determine what too much is in terms of not being healthy? I think determining how much is too much would be based on the lifestyle, the health of the person, and the the individual themselves. I mean, even if you took a group of people 
you know, whatever age bracket and you looked at them as a whole. I think we're too, I agree with the one piece of the article where she talks about whoever was talking about where we're too focused on protein. It's not that I don't think we need to focus on protein. I think that in my mind, I interpreted that as we're too hyper-focused on one piece of the nutrition program plans, lifestyle that people are creating. It's not just healthy proteins. That's just one part of it. We also know that people need to eat more vegetables and need to drink more water, need to get outside and walk more. So I understand that. Like I get that. And I think that's important because when you hyper-focus on anything, then people, honestly, they fuck it up because then they end up eating too much of one thing and not balancing their diet. And that can be detrimental too. So I think the balance piece to this is better to think about overall instead of just one macronutrient. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'll say, Nicole, is from a health standpoint, um, what I was going to touch up on is the health implications of eating higher amounts of protein. Now, there has been some thought in the past that increasing your protein intake will increase glomerular filtration rate. That word always seems to not roll off the tongue very well or roll <laughs> off the tongue, uh, which is associated with the, that's your GFR. It's associated with um, your the health of your kidneys, right? So what we show, what we find is that eating more protein does have a slight impact on that. And it also has an impact on kidney size. So the original thought was, well, if you eat too much protein, you're going to damage your kidneys. But that's not what we find now because we've had plenty of studies now that show that you can eat four grams per pound, not saying eat four grams per pound, because I do still think that's completely unnecessary, but you can eat four grams of protein per pound of body weight, and you're not going to have a detrimental effect on your kidneys unless you're in a stage of kidney disease, renal disease, yeah. renal failure, et cetera, um, where your kidneys are all already compromised. And what we find is with the, uh, the change in the size of the kidneys, is that if you stop eating the protein, it goes back to like a smaller size again. So there isn't a case for is protein damaging to your kidneys if you eat quote unquote too much from a health standpoint. And the other thing that people used to think is that because you seem to excrete more calcium when you mm -hmm. consume more protein, then that suggests that you're actually, it's creating an acidic environment and that's causing calcium to be taken from your bones to buffer the acidic environment because calcium is a, is a buffer. It's more of like an alkaline. And the suggestion was that you're going to, it's going to be detrimental to your bone health. However, what we actually find is that when you're consuming adequate calcium and adequate protein, that what's actually happening is that the protein is allowing you to absorb more calcium. So you're actually just excreting out what you don't need. So in that case, there's no case for protein being detrimental to your health. And those were really the two biggest ones where, where people were concerned about. Mm -hmm. Now, I would make the argument that consuming more protein is good for you. And we already talked about the elderly population, right? And I also want to just talk about the fact that in elderly individuals, it has been tested. Um, there are other ways of testing. So uh, the RDA represents the estimated average requirement plus two standard deviations determined from selected nitrogen balance studies. And there are other ways that are more expensive and they've done some smaller studies uh, with these other ways of testing. Recent studies using the indicator amino acid oxidation technique, an independent trace-based method that circumvents many nitrogen balance limitations, right? So suggesting that some studies in the way that they look at nitrogen balance, and 
what is nitrogen balance? Nitrogen balance is basically looking at, are you protein deficient or not? We'll just kind of simplify it to that. I don't want to get too much in detail, but these studies suggest that elderly women aged greater than or equal to 65 years, and especially over 80 years old, their estimation for protein requirements are 10 to 11 grams per kilogram per day. And we talked about that two standard deviation with the RDA, so 0.8 grams per kilogram with a two standard deviation. The two Mm -hmm. standard deviation would thus make the RDA 12 to 13 grams per kilogram per day for an elderly individual over the age of 65. So that is using different data. And again, these are small studies. So we obviously do need to do further research in this. One of the issues is that it's very expensive to test in this way. Um, So there aren't very large studies or meta-analyses done this way, but I think that uh, is a good example of why we need further investigation into this and to really beg the question, is the RDA adequate protein? Okay, so Nicole, the other thing that I want to talk about is weight loss outcomes. Over the past few years, there have been six meta-analyses performed to assess whether high-protein diets differentially impact weight loss and changes in body composition over the short and long term. In the tightly controlled shorter-term studies of less than or equal to one year, the high-protein diets ranging from 16% of your total caloric intake all the way to 45% of your total caloric intake as protein, which is equivalent to about 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram per day, which is the range. I say 1.2 should be the RDA. That should be the minimum threshold. Yeah. It illustrated greater weight loss, fat mass loss, so loss of actual fat tissue, and or preservation of lean mass compared with the normal protein diets containing only 5% to 23% of intake as protein. Two of the meta-analyses included studies that did not include energy restriction interventions and still reported more weight loss with the high-protein versions. And in addition to that, I also want to add the fact that generally people seem to think that protein is only for people that work out. Yeah. And there are some studies, some recent studies that would suggest that consuming protein independent of resistance training also increases lean mass in individuals. And the reason why is because mechanistically speaking, like we said earlier, there are two things, Nicole, that will stimulate the mTOR gene to activate muscle protein synthesis. One of them is resistance training and one of them is protein. It's not resistance training and protein is required, right? It's it's resistance training or protein. And if you combine the two, then you're going to have a greater muscle protein synthesis response. So what that suggests is you're not only going to prevent loss of muscle by consuming more protein, you're actually going to build muscle by consuming more protein. Now, I recommend that people do resistance training for obvious reasons. I think muscles were meant to be used. We evolved in this way. And if we just sit around all day, it's not going to be beneficial. And when we look at women in terms of uh, risk of osteoporosis, I think that resistance training has a a much larger impact on bone density than pretty much anything else that you can throw at it. So working out between the ages of, I don't know, 16 and 40, when you're building your bones, I guess premenopausal, right? When you're actually building and restructuring your bones, uh, that is going to be super important throughout your lifespan. And like we talked about with the protein, as you're in that kind of middle 
of your life bracket, if if you're like a, a teenage girl or if you're a woman all the way up to menopause, mm-hmm. when you're building, if protein from a digestive standpoint, if protein allows you to absorb more calcium, mm-hmm. that also means that you're going to have adequate calcium to build bones, right? And if you're doing resistance training, that is going to strengthen your muscles and therefore strengthen your bones. And then obviously, you know, we, we also have like vitamin D intake is obviously essential. And if people are deficient, which from my experience, most people are, I was yeah. deficient at one point and I have to make sure that I diligently supplement with it every day. And I've been tracking and monitoring it annually and increasing my vitamin D intake um, every single year to kind of match where I want to be. Because right now my last levels were at 41. So it's gradually increasing, but yeah. I'm like, I want to be between the 50 to 70 range. I think that's going to be the sweet spot. Yeah. Um, but that is obviously an important factor for bone density as well. But let's get back to the weight loss. Did you want to add something, Nicole? Well, I was just going to say, well, one, just because it's on my the top, the tip of my tongue, the vitamin D, my vitamin D, I have not had to supplement since I've been walking outside. I mean, anybody that follows me on social media knows that I am relentless about getting my steps in and I do it outside instead of on a treadmill now because I haven't had to supplement vitamin D since I've been doing that. So that's one, just a a, a push for the steps and the vitamin D. And then two, from the protein. I don't know if you do this with clients. We've never talked about this, but I always have my clients do what I call the protein threshold test. So for the first 30 days that we start talking about protein, wherever their journal, like wherever they start in their food journal. So they do like a two week, you know, write everything in. And if their protein is roughly between, let's just say, 90 and 120 grams per day, which is kind of where most women, when they journal that I see, fall, I'll say to them, okay, I want you to hit 150 grams for the next 30 days. I want you to be relentless about it. And then we're just going to talk about how you feel, what your hunger levels are, how your sleep is, and how your performance is in the gym. And so from a clinical standpoint, with all research aside, which we I know it's important, but when we talk about what we do and what we see, there has not been one time, not once, that we do that protein test. And then after 30 days, body fat goes down, weight either stays the same or goes down depending on the person. Their muscle um, or performance in the gym is increased. Their sleep is better and they're less hungry throughout the day. So they don't have hard time sticking within their caloric needs that we set for them. So that's just something that I'm thinking of as we're talking. Right. And that change can be made by just focusing on protein. That's it. Just that one change. Exactly. So, and then the other thing that I'll mention that I didn't mention is the longer term studies greater than or equal to one year or greater than one year. Yeah. Um, The high protein diets within the meta analyses, again, lead to greater weight loss and fat mass losses compared to Mm -hmm. normal protein versions. Uh, However, they didn't really see the same preservation of lean mass, um, which is kind of conflicting there. Uh, however, it could be due to dietary compliance because a longer, longer term study, you know, you're not really tracking, you're not doing something like it's like a metabolic ward and you're seeing the outcomes in the short term studies, right? You can't yeah, yeah. put somebody over a year in a metabolic in a ward. ward. <laughs> exactly. So um, there's just, you have to kind of pay attention to how these studies are done and, and what the capabilities are as well. But long term studies either way show that uh, there are, it's more favorable when you're eating a higher, higher protein diet. The other thing that I'll say is mechanistically speaking, a higher protein diet is more satiating and protein has the highest thermic effect of food, TEF. So when we look at your total daily energy expenditure, which is something we've talked about in the past that 
total daily energy expenditure is comprised of your basal metabolic rate, your EAT, which is your exercise activity thermogenesis, your workout, your basal metabolic rate is 60%. Your exercise activity thermogenesis is 10%. Your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis is 20%. And then you have another 10% to account for the thermic effect of food. So how many calories, how much energy does it take to break down and process the food that you're eating? And what we find between protein, carbs, and fat is that your body burns more calories trying to break down protein than it does carbs or fat. So with that being said, consuming more protein will lead you to a higher thermic effect and consuming more protein will lead you to feeling more satiated because it takes longer to break down the protein that you're eating. And if you look at the research that's shown in a systemic review of 23 different studies that compared isocaloric high protein meals ranging from 20 to 207 grams of protein with normal protein meals ranging from three to 66 grams of protein. There's a lot of variance in that. So we're looking at individual studies and how much protein they actually uh, recommended. The majority of 71% of the studies included within the review demonstrated improvements in at least one marker of appetite and satiety. That could be hormones like NPY, PPY, like any of the hunger hormones that are triggered when you're eating more protein. So uh, the satiety is increased when you're eating more protein, which is more conducive to those weight loss outcomes that we're talking about. Outside of that, so the thing that we really kind of try to drive home here is that the RDA is not enough, the 0.8 grams per kilogram. Americans aren't even, probably not even meeting. If they are meeting the RDA, they're barely meeting it. Um, I find it very hard to believe that that age range, what was it, 19 to 30, that -hmm. that age range is actually consuming 90 to 100 grams of protein on a regular basis. Again, that is survey data. Now, then we get into the part of the article with protein bars, right? So do you need to eat protein bar? Are protein bars good for you? And whether or not, if anybody ever asks me if something is good for your health, the the answer is always obviously going to be it depends Mm -hmm. because it really depends on various different circumstances. Would I like individuals to eat more of their protein from whole foods? Yes. Yes. And I'll put a caveat to that too. Uh, When we look at protein, so we kind of have to have some kind of a balance between uh, different sources of protein that we eat. So for example, if I look at maximally stimulating muscle protein synthesis, one of the requirements for that is uh, a high amount of uh, branch chain amino acids, uh, specifically leucine, but then you also need all the essential amino acids, right? Mm -hmm. This is why I say, okay, well, supplementing with a branch chain amino acid is not really going to be beneficial for that plus various other reasons. If you're eating adequate protein, you're already getting enough branch chain amino acids, but also branch chain amino acids aren't giving you all of the essential amino acids and you need all of them to build muscle. Mm -hmm. Now you'll get more bang for your buck in terms of quality of protein, right? We have like amino acid scores where we look at um, how how much is a protein going to be uh, bioavailable to you? What's the digestion, the absorption of certain sources of protein? And we find that like dairy products are the highest and eggs are up there too. And that also says that whey protein, so supplementation would also be amongst the highest. Um, But the balance that we kind of need is because the research kind of goes both ways when it comes to protein consumption. So I like to tell people that it's a good thing to eat animal protein However, you want a good, healthy balance between animal and plant-based protein because Mm -hmm. the research shows that although animal-based protein is more optimal, uh, people that eat 
a lot or too much animal protein are at a higher risk for things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and, um, and cancer. Whereas people who eat less, who eat more plant-based proteins are at a lower risk. So you kind of need a balance. And now I would take that research kind of with a grain of salt because we're looking at epidemiological studies. And then you kind of look at the question, okay, well, how much saturated fat are people eating? And are they eating a ton of red meat or are they eating a ton of white meat, right? There's going to be a difference there. So I tell people always choose predominantly lean meats. Every once in a while you, you want to have a steak, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but then also focus on some plant-based proteins. And I think part of the thing with the plant-based proteins, Nicole, is that they also come, because they come from plants, they come with phytochemicals, antioxidants, and polyphenols, which have added benefits for from a health standpoint. Um, so I want to touch up on that, but then Nicole, back to the thought of the eating the protein bars. If, like I mentioned before, if you're an older individual and you're struggling to get in your protein, yeah, sure. Eat a protein bar. The one thing that I would be weary of, which this article does highlight, which I do agree is that many of the protein bars historically have been, this is like before the development of quest bars, which kind of was revolutionary in the protein bar industry because it was the first bar that wasn't a candy bar, right? Because the majority of the bars were protein with lots of sugar, lots of carbohydrate, very calorically yeah. dense, like 500 calories in a, in a protein bar. That's more than some people's meals, mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to be in a calorie deficit. So looking for things like, for example, Quest bars are decent. Um, looking at things like the Quest chips too are also decent. Also, like I like the no cow bars. It's a plant-based mm -hmm. protein. I eat those. Uh, an RX bar, although RX bars are slightly higher in sugar, but it comes from dates, right? So just being mindful around if you're going to eat a protein bar, what else is in that protein bar other than just protein? Uh, and really kind of just looking at the label, dissecting it, seeing how many calories are in the bar and whether or not it fits in and whether or not you even need it. Like I wouldn't suggest for somebody to every day as a staple have a protein bar, but if you're on the run, you're on the go, you want to grab a quick, quick source of protein, it may help to satiate you. Um, however, I will also kind of argue that uh, if you're getting it from a protein bar or a protein shake, your protein, uh, because it's kind of pre-digested and processed, it's not going to satiate you as much as eating a whole food source of protein. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question is, are they healthy for this article? I mean, even that, you know, I hate questions like that. <laughs> it depends. That's the answer. It depends is the answer one. So I feel like they set themselves up for failure with that type of state, like that type of uh, not statement question, because I mean, you could argue both sides. One, two, it all depends on the person. And then three, it all depends on how they're using them. So again, like you've got to taper down and kind of cut down all of the bullshit and get to the real question is, 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 is a protein bar something that is usable in a healthy lifestyle or doable for a healthy lifestyle? And the answer is, of course, yes. We have all these food options now. One of the things I don't like about these types of discussions is that if it's black and white, then you're missing all the great stuff that's in the middle in terms of balanced diet, the types of protein, where you're getting it from, who you are, what, what type of proteins do you like to eat? You know, I mean, man, there's so many ways that you can get good quality protein in your food plan or your lifestyle without feeling like it's an all or nothing mindset or this or that type of choice. Yeah, absolutely.
And Nicole, I think I'll finish with just a general recommendation for protein. I think the minimum threshold for an individual who is not active would be 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And for individuals who are active, the number is uh, to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. If your really goal is in the gym, you want to get stronger, you want to build lean muscle tissue, and you want to focus on optimizing health within the fitness realm, it's 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. And what I'll say is you can get away with, if you're in a calorie surplus trying to build muscle, being in the 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight um, up to like 2.0. And then from 2.0 to 2.2 would be the range. Like if you are looking to reduce body fat, stay satiated throughout mm -hmm. that process. And you're also looking to maintain your lean mass uh, 2.0 to 2.2 on that higher end range in a calorie deficit, right? One of the things that we always say is eating more protein is muscle sparing in a calorie deficit. So just having a higher consumption when you're on a weight loss or fat loss program. Um, but those are the recommendations that I would make. And it's a, it's a hot topic. Listen, it's a very controversial topic in the nutrition field amongst dietitians, physicians, researchers, anybody talking about the topic. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the, the research, uh, my educated opinion is that the RDA is way too low and we need to raise that, especially like we talked about, Nicole, for mm -hmm. uh, elderly individuals where they lose more muscle mass as they age and that protein threshold for stimulating muscle protein synthesis needs to be higher for those individuals. Yeah, I would agree. Try it out people try out a small increase in protein for 30 days and let us know how you do. Yep. And, uh, in terms of sources of protein, I always say meat, fish, poultry, dairy, eggs, soy, tempeh, tofu, and, uh, seitan, which is a, yeah. a plant-based source. And then, you know, obviously, uh, ancillary or accessory kind of yeah. uh, protein sources, beans, nuts, seeds that are just going to they're going to be sources of either carbs or fat, depending on what, like if it's nuts, it's going to be a source of uh, predominantly fats. If it's, uh, you know, beans, beans are going to be like one cup of beans is going to be 45 grams of carbs and 15 grams of protein. Is it going to add protein to your diet? Yes. But that to me is uh, not going to make as drastic of a change as consuming some of the kind of quote unquote primary sources of protein. And ladies and gentlemen, that is protein in a nutshell. I suggest that you uh, log in a food journal for a period of time to see how much protein you're taking in and then figure out where you need to go from there and then just incrementally increase over a period of time. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.